Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Cold Fusion Now podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in the science, engineering, and business of Cold Fusion Leonard. I'm your host, Ruby Carrot. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Pamela Mosier-Boss, recently retired from a 30-year career as an analytical chemist with the U.S. Navy, working in environmental sensors. She investigated the use of surface-enhanced Raman spectroscopy to characterize various bacteria and for the detection of chemical contaminants such as perchlorate, hexavalent chromium, and chlorinated solvents. She also worked to develop direct push sensors to map out subsurface plumes of heavy metals and petroleum. Since 1989, she's conducted research in the area of low-energy nuclear reactions and worked with Dr. Stanislav Spock, who pioneered the use of co-deposition to induce the reaction. At the recent ICCF 21 conference, she and her colleagues reported on a possible technology for the nuclear particles detected from their unique style cell. Welcome, Dr. Pamela Mosier-Boss. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Uh, Dr. Mosier-Boss, Let's start at the beginning. How did you first get into cold fusion, and how was it that you had the right skills to do what you needed to do there? Okay, well, being an analytical chemist, I had experience with both spectroscopic and electrochemical techniques, as well as modeling and analyzing data. And these skills have proven useful in all the areas of research I've been involved with in the past 30 years. And even though I'm retired from the Navy lab, I am an emeritus there, and I still go into the lab to work on my SIRS of bacteria. And we are also working on interpreting our old co-deposition data and writing them up. Mm. So as for becoming involved in cold fusion, well, in 1989, Stan Spock and I were working on understanding the electrochemistry of the cyanochloride system for torpedo propulsion. And we were actually using some of the spectroelectrochemical techniques that had been pioneered by Fleshman and Pons in order to study that system. And when the announcement occurred, Stan went to Frank Gordon, who was our department head at the time, and asked for funding to explore the phenomenon. And as Frank has said in the past, you only have so many opportunities to grab the brass ring and knowing the implications of the technology, he provided us with both funding as well as valuable top cover. Well... I know that you worked with Dr. Stanislav Spock for years, and you pioneered that co-deposition method along with him. Talk about how that idea came about, and what did it mean for the Lenner experiments that you performed? Stan was aware of what Pons and Fleshman were doing before the announcement, and he also knew about the long loading times required to initiate the effect, and Stan was not a patient person. <laughs> And he came up with the idea of co-deposition. He, he reasoned that if you could simultaneously plate out the metallic palladium in the presence of uh, electrochemically generated deuterium gas, the palladium should instantly load with uh, deuterium. And we verified this by both cyclic voltammetry and galvanostatic and potentiostatic pulsing experiments. And with the co-deposition process, you, you create an ever-expanding electrode surface that assures non-steady state conditions. So this process, this uh, technique, assures both high flux and high loading, which are both required to initiate the effect. 
Yeah, well, I know that one of your colleagues, Dr. Melvin Miles of the Navy's China Lake Lab, was able to reproduce that coat deposition method. Has anybody else been able to reproduce that style of cell? Uh, turns out that several other research groups have used variants of the coat deposition technique. An overview of uh, coat deposition experiments was presented in a poster at ICC of 21. Most of those efforts have focused on calorimetry and excess heat. For example, Letts and Cravens explored ways to trigger heat production in co-deposition. They looked at effects of external magnetic fields as well as the effect of chemical additives on the heat production. Uh, Letts and Hagelstein more recently demonstrated that they obtained excess heat when a fast plating protocol was used. However, when they used a slow plating protocol, uh, and that slow plating protocol improves adherence of the plating deposit on the cathode, uh, they saw no excess heat. Hmm. And these results were verified by DeGero uh, at the Navy lab in, in Dahlgren. Uh, DeGero further showed that the excess heat d directly correlated with the orientation of the external magnetic fields as well as the presence of new elements on the cathode. And Fran Tanzella, Mitchell Swartz, and John Dash have also seen excess heat with their variations of co-deposition. In other experiments, uh, John Bachwitz measured tritium in both the gas and liquid phases and saw excess tritium in co-deposition when low-tritiated D2O was used. However, when he used highly-tritiated uh, heavy water, uh, he saw a loss of tritium, which indicated there was a reaction that was consuming thermal tritons. And using closed systems, a group headed by Lee in South Korea observed the same thing. And finally, Fran Tanzella of SRI replicated RCR39 results during the Galileo project that was initiated by Steve Krivett of New Energy Times. And those results were published in back-to-back -back papers last year in the International Journal of Hydrogen Energy. Wow. Well, it seems like the co-deposition method seems like a real candidate for a reproducible type cell. Uh, people have used it independently, uh, with and without our input, and have uh, obtained some measure of success. Hmm. It, it is, however, a very, uh, the deposit tends to fall off the cathode, the substrate, substrate mm -hmm. so that makes it uh, not a practical uh, device, you know, for It's not as easy as it seems, is what you're saying. Well, it is fairly straightforward how to do it, but you got to make sure that, you know, that everything's nice and clean and that the deposit will, will stay pretty much on the uh, cathode substrate. But oftentimes you'll see a, lump, a bunch of palladium on the bottom of your cell. So it's, it's not good for a commercial product, is what I'm saying. Mm. It's, it's good to investigate what's going on, but for commercialization, it's not the way to go. Well, I know that you've done some very successful work using this method along with CR39 detectors. And your research actually generated a good bit of news about 10 years ago. Can you tell us about that experiment and what are some of the results that you found that were so exciting? Well, first off, we've been doing uh, the CR39 work between the years of 2004 and 2001. Uh, we should point out that prior to that, we had conducted experiments looking for tritium, X-ray, and gamma ray emissions, as well as transmutation. By and large, we didn't do any calorimetry work beyond showing that the cathode was the heat source and that the heat was not due to dual heating. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Stan reasoned that by itself, excess heat production, even if it exceeds that of known chemistry, does not prove that nuclear reactions are occurring within the palladium lattice, and that's why our efforts focus on looking for evidence of nuclear ash. It was at ICCS-11 in Marseille in 2004 that George Miley suggested we should conduct experiments using CR-39 detectors, and so we looked into it. And we saw that experiments had been done with the detectors in contact with the cathodes. We also saw that CR-39 was a constantly integrating type of detector, meaning that once an event occurred, it was permanently stamped in the plastic. You didn't know when the events occurred, but you didn't average them away, as would happen when doing real-time measurements. And this was good for events that occur sporadically and in burst. Another positive about CR-39 detectors is that they are not affected by electronic noise or magnetic fields. Using these detectors, we showed that the palladium deposit was the source of the tracks. Control experiments using either copper chloride or nickel chloride in place of the palladium chloride did not produce tracks and detectors. And in all three systems, a metal is plated out in the presence of evolving deuterium gas, and all three systems form a dendritic plating. The only significant difference is that palladium loads with deuterium, copper, and nickel do not. These control experiments rule out mechanical or chemical damage as the source of the pitting. And the pits are not due to the dendrites pushing into the plastic, nor are they due to the hydroxide ions produced at the cathode during the electrolysis of heavy water. I believe that the most significant results obtained using our CR39 detectors was the observation of triple tracks and the thorough analysis of the SRI detectors. The triple tracks are indicative of neutrons that with energy greater than 9.6 MeV. These Neutrons can cause the shattering of the carbon atom into three alphas. And the SRI detectors uh, were subjected to microscopic analysis and scanning by us and sequential etching by Lipson and Rosetsky. Uh, the sequential etching and, li- and lin- linear energy tra- transfer analysis of the uh, scan data identified tracks due to 2.45 MeV neutrons. 2 to 14 MeV protons, 2 to 15 MeV alphas, as well as 14.1 MeV neutrons. Well, we're going to have some more on this topic in just a minute. Uh, We'll be back with Leonard researcher Dr. Pamela Mosier-Boss after this. Mark your calendars for the 13th International Workshop on Anomalies in Hydrogen-Loaded Metals this October 5th through 9th, 2018 in Greccio, Italy. Find details and register at the International Society of Condensed Matter Nuclear Science website. Go to iscmns.org. The 19th meeting of the Japan Cold Fusion Research Society, JCF-19, happens this November 9th and 10th, 2018, at Iwate University in Morioka, Japan. For more information and links, go to iscmns.org. And we're back speaking with Dr. Pamela Mosier-Boss, an analytical chemist and Leonard scientist recently retired from the U.S. Navy. Now, Dr. Boss, at ICCF 21, you proposed employing Leonard-generated neutrons to fission uranium. Can you describe uh, how that would work and why would we want that? Because isn't Leonard-generated heat and electricity superior to anything that we would want with uranium? 
Okay, first off, when we did that experiment, our intent was to use uranium as a witness material and to monitor the reaction in real time using a germanium detector. And we also had a CR39 detector next to the uh, gold uranium composite cathode. Now, it turns out that uranium-235 is fissioned by both thermal and higher-energy neutrons, while uranium-238 is only fissioned by neutrons with energy greater than 2 MeV. If fissioning of uranium occurred, we expected to see new lines appear in the gamma-ray spectrum. However, in that experiment, we generated a large number of neutrons that had damaged the germanium detector. And from the damage, we estimated that the average neutron energy was between 6.3 and 6.8 MeV. Mm-hmm. Also, the CR39 detector showed a greater number of triple tracks than we've seen in any of our experiments and elongated tracks due to proton recoils, and both types of tracks are due to neutrons. And in addition, the CR39 detector showed large cylindrical tracks that are due to fission fragments, and these large cylindrical tracks have only been observed in co-deposition experiments done on uranium. Hmm. At the end of the experiment, we took the spent cathode and a piece of the uranium wire to the University of uh, Texas, Austin, to obtain gamma spectrum of the wire as well as the spent cathode. And the cathode spectrum showed stimulated X-ray peaks attributed to americium as well as a peak at 59.5 keV due to the radioactive decay of americium-241. And the formation of americium provided further evidence that we had produced a substantial amount of neutrons. Uh, these results indicated to us that it was feasible to use Leonard-generated neutrons to fission uranium, making a hybrid fusion-fission reactor possible. And there are a number of advantages of such a reactor. One is that it does not require fuel that is enriched in uranium-235, and the reactor can be easily shut off. Uh, all you have to do is just turn off the current to the Leonard cell, and that ends everything, so you don't have a Fukushima event occur. And it can be used to dispose of nuclear waste that has been produced from conventional uh, fission reactors. So there's a lot of advantages. Mm, nice. Mm. You know, you're trying to make a technology while the science is still not fully understood. How do you guide your experiments when there's no theory that tells you what's actually happening? Well, the fact that there is no generally accepted theory or model is really not a problem. I mean, in order to develop a theory or model, you need to know what is being produced inside the palladium lattice, heat, helium-4, neutrons, and so on. All you need to know is what conditions initiate those reactions. So there should be synergy between experiment and theory development, and the theory has to explain all observations and not just the heat production, in our opinion. So in designing our experiments, we often use the results of previous researchers to guide us. For instance, uh, John Bacchus observed enhanced effects when he uh, employed an external magnetic field. And so we began to do co-deposition experiments using external electric and magnetic fields. I know Dennis Lutz did the same thing. Our biggest problem with designing experiments is finding the appropriate diagnostics to monitor the experiment, especially given the fact that a lot of the uh, reactions occur burst-like and in Sporadically. Mm. So real-time detectors tend to average away the signal. Uh, integrating detectors such as the CR39 and photographic film, which we've also employed, don't tell you when an event occurred, but, uh, and you don't know what led up to it. What we really need are some in-situ real-time diagnostics that can be used in an aqueous or gaseous environment that does not impede loading, and to my knowledge, such diagnostics do not exist. 
Well, it sounds like you might have to build that. Yeah, we've uh, been talking about things, but we just don't have uh, a couple million dollars to do it. Mm. Well, um, you know, Dr. Mosier Boss, I just have one question for you, uh, this last question. How has it uh, been for you to be one of the few women doing research in this field? Well... Quite frankly, most of science is dominated by men, and my experience in Leonard hasn't been any different than that in my other scientific endeavors. Uh, most of my male colleagues have been fine with my working in the field of science, and I've been very fortunate to have had supervisors and mentors who have been very supportive. So mm. I, I can't say it's been much of a problem. Well, I'm so glad to hear that, and um, your research is tremendous. I wish you well with that and with your technology development as well. I hope you'll come back and talk again. Okay, well, thanks again for having me on the show. We've been speaking with Dr. Pamela Mosier-Boss, an analytical chemist who spent a career at the U.S. Navy working to develop environmental sensors and researching Lenner. That concludes our show for the day. Thank you for listening to the Voices of Researchers reporting on a science that will one day be the technology of our green energy future. And you can help make it happen. Sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash coldfusionnow. Go to our website at coldfusionnow.org for more. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And of course, find more episodes on our website at coldfusionnow.org. Until next time, I'm Ruby Carrot.